0: If you're if you're not thinking sixty year warranty, then you can do these other techniques, and they're gonna they're gonna work just fine. But I'm not thinking that way. I'm thinking lifetime warranty, and so when you think lifetime warranty, your approach has got to be different.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the final episode of the American legends on the rhinoplasty podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh proudly brought to us by Allegan. So we are ending off with a bang. This man needs absolutely no introduction. Uh, I interviewed him more than a year ago. We had a very interesting talk about complications in rhinoplasty on our saucer podcast. I mean, website at least. And uh, today we've got something very special. So this is the topic is the 10 tips by Prof. Dean Turiomi. And Prof. Dean, thank you so much for being on the Rhinoplasty podcast.
0: Oh, Cameron, it's a pleasure.
1: So Prof, um, I know we've got these 10 topics, but before we get into that, for our listeners around the world, I mean, I don't think there's anyone who's quite as passionate about rhinoplasty and academic and teaching and everything. How did you end up where you're at now? If you can just give us a little bit of a background of what got you to where you are now.
0: Well, uh, coming out of my training and my fellowship, as well as my residency, uh, everyone kept telling me rhinoplasty is by far the most complicated facial plastic procedure. Uh, It's very challenging, uh, a lot of variable anatomy from patient to patient. And I'm just the type of person who really enjoys a challenge. The more of a challenge it is, the the more I feel it's something that uh, I'd like to try to tackle. And so over the last 32 years, it's been a journey for me where I've tried to improve my skills, improve my techniques, improve my outcomes long term. And so it's been uh, it's been a learning experience. And what I like to do whenever I can is to teach what I've learned over the last 32 years to try to help other people improve their outcomes, improve their techniques and get more confidence in performing rhinoplasty. But it really comes down to really critically looking at your outcomes and just trying your best to get better, always trying to get better.
1: Oh, the next 10 tips I think are gonna help all of us. So Prof, please go ahead with the first topic. And then what we'll be doing is as we've covered a topic, I'll ask some questions and we can have a little discussion as we work our way through these uh, interesting topics.
0: Okay, great. I'll go ahead and get started. These are my uh, disclosures. So we br- briefly touched on this. The rhinoplasty operation is the most difficult facial plastic operation. The nose sits prominently right in the middle of the face. Anatomy is variable from patient to patient. The other thing is healing can vary based on skin thickness and structural variations between patients. But the other thing is the nose has a functional Aspect which is very important to the patient, and that's something that we have to always be cognizant of. So, I always ask myself and I ask other people, and we have some interesting discussions on this is there a warranty on a rhinoplasty? Uh, What is the warranty? I mean, we have warranties on things that we buy, we have warranties on cars, we have warranties on other things, and many people. Undergo rhinoplasty, how long should the result last? Because this really dictates how you approach the surgery, what maybe what techniques you pick, how you approach your 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 surgery. should a patient expect to need another operation in a number of years because of deformity or functional issues? So I think as a rhinoplasty surgeon, we should strive to provide a long, lifelong aesthetic and functional outcome. That's just the way I feel about it. And that's always been my approach. Here's a patient who comes in and she has a relatively straightforward deformity, a little dorsal hump, a little bulbous tip. And this is the computer imaging we did just to slightly increase her projection. And I did a very basic operation on her, did a dorsal hump excision and cephalic trim, dome sutures, septal extension graft, and some ailer rim grafts. And then here she is, two years post-op, reasonable improvement. She's very happy with her outcome. And then here she is, 14 years post-op. Now, she comes back every year for her one-year follow-up visit, and this is what I try to achieve with all the patients. Here's her lateral view, which has been fairly stable over the years. Here's her three-quarter view. Here's her opposite lateral view, three-quarter view and the base
1: view.
0: Now, if I was to be critical, she has a little retraction of that right ailer margin, which actually may have been there preoperatively. Uh, here's another patient with a dorsal hump, a hanging infratip, and here she is 15. She she brings her daughter in for rhinoplasty, and she comes in, this is 15 years post-op. Her front view looks pretty good, lateral view looks good, held up well over time. Here's her three-quarter view. On base, if we want to be critical, she's got a little medialization of that uh, lateral ailer region, but no functional deficit. So, you know, maybe Cameron, we can talk a little bit about this and before we move on to the next point.
1: Yeah, so that's, this is interesting for me, because if I look at those results, 15 years, it's brilliant. And yet now, technically, there's so many new things. And we're going to talk about that just now, the whole preservation side of things. And yet your result there is superb. So sometimes you've got to ask yourself, where do I get that little bit of improvement or not? It's, I don't know. I mean, that that's a good result. So do you have to necessarily change things to get a better result? Because that's a great result you had there.
0: Right. So, you know, I have results though that are not good. And so I'll show a couple of those a little later. And so the point is, is that, That's what I want in the majority of my patients. But there's a certain percentage, not a big percentage, I'm sure less than 5%, that present with issues that occur over time. And that really dictated changes that I made over time. Which And it's all um, very carefully presented in my my three-volume rhinoplasty book because that was the whole idea is to show – you know, some suboptimal outcomes, why they occurred, mm. what I think was the etiology, and then what I did to change my technique to try to prevent those from occurring in the future. And again, this gets back to the whole issue of trying to make yourself better, trying to improve your techniques, and trying to maximize aesthetic and functional outcome over a period of many years.
1: Okay, so I'll, I have a question here. You know, that the the that says, we should under-promise and over-deliver. And I think it's good to try. And when you're morphing patients and you're discussing how you want to get the result, you, you want to improve their, their outcome. But now it comes to the point where I, I, I have this concern is if you say, okay, I'm going to take some of the hump down, but you take a little bit more down and it's the patient didn't actually want what you're doing there. And you think it's a great result, but it's not necessarily what the patient thinks is a great result. So I think it can be dangerous this thing of saying to a patient, I'm gonna improve your nose, because on the other hand, you have people who overpromise and say, look at what a great result I'm gonna do, and they don't do that. So it's a very tricky, a fine line to walk.
0: I agree hundred percent. And that's why when I do I do my imaging live in front of the patient at the time of consultation. And I do that because I want to read their body language, mm-hmm. I want to see their response to you know what I'm doing. And Typically, I will not show the ideal result. And I explain Mm -hmm. that to the patients. I show what I think is very likely achievable Mm -hmm. and, you know, with maybe 80, 90% likelihood I can get to this result. If someone wants increase in projection, they have a severely underprojected tip, three prior surgeries, tight skin envelope, I'm going to be very cautious with how much projection I can achieve. And then the patient's going to tell me, well, can you do a little bit more? Mm -hmm. And I'll tell the patient, yeah, I'll try. But this is what I think is a realistic outcome. And that way, the patient doesn't have expectations, which could be beyond what's realistic. And then that puts extra pressure on you as the surgeon. Mm. Maybe you push the envelope a little too much. Mm. Maybe you get a complication. The whole idea behind the imaging is to show what we would consider a realistic outcome. Now, the thing is, is the more experienced you become and the more you... Use the techniques that are available to you, the more you then understand what is achievable. And that's the difference between an experienced surgeon who reflects back on prior experiences versus a younger, inexperienced surgeon who doesn't have that catalog in the back of their mind of all these different cases of similar anatomy and what was actually achievable.
1: The prof, one last question around this warranty. So if a patient asks you, to do the operation, when would you? When do you say to them the swelling will have come down, the healing, etc. And that is the closest to the result is that they're going to get. How long after the operation?
0: That's a that's a really good question because I tell patients when I do the consult, your nose is thirty percent healed at a year, and maybe forty percent healed at two years, and they're looking at me like, "Well, when is it done?" I never give them a time. I don't, because I think the nose continues to change over time. I mean, you can see changes from the 10th to the 11th year. I've seen it myself. So, you know, when is the nose done healing? I I don't think it stops. I think changes continue to occur. Will the majority of the changes stabilize in a year or two years? Yes. But it depends on the technique you use. That's why I'm going, to t- I'm going to dive into dorsal preservation in a couple minutes. One of the reasons why I like dorsal preservation is the changes that I used to see in the mid-vault and upper third continue to occur over many years. Whereas when we use the dorsal preservation, you know, logically, it makes sense because you're not raising the skin as much, because you're not changing the anatomy uh, from the leading edge of the dorsum that those changes will be less prominent and less of an issue over time. And you know that's what people who've been doing this for many years tell me. I don't have 20 years of experience doing dorsal preservation, mm-hmm. but logically it makes sense. And that's one of the reasons why I've really transitioned a lot to using dorsal preservation in primary rhinoplasty.
1: Right, well, we're gonna come coming to that just now. Let's carry on with the next topic.
0: Okay, so, when we do conventional dorsal hump production, a Joseph hump production, we basically remove the dorsal cap, the leaning edge of the mid-vault, we create an open roof deformity, which then frequently requires spreader grafts or spreader flaps. And so what we're doing is we're making modifications to the leaning edge of the upper two-thirds of the nose against the skin where it's the thinnest on the nose. It's tricky. It's it's when you follow these patients long term, I feel very comfortable with the structure techniques in the tip area. But I over time I continue to see changes that occur in the upper two-thirds with respect to nasal bone and middle vault. And I think that's because of a couple things, thinning of the skin, contracture of the skin envelope, and as the skin contracts, certain things can show up. So dorsal preservation is really an interesting um, philosophy, preservation rhinoplasty in general, because what we're doing is preserving the structure of the middle vault, preserving the structure for the most part of the nasal bones, rarely need spreader grafts, less need for camouflage, uh, minimal, if any, contracture effect, particularly if you're not doing any dorsal skin elevation. And so, even thin skin, short nasal bones, probably they're not an issue. Um, We, Miguel and myself, we published this paper basically making a distinction between the foundational techniques and the surface techniques. And this is very important because, you know, the other day I did a surface technique, basically uh, um, a spare roof type B procedure. But most often I'm doing a foundational technique or I'm doing some type of letdown or pushdown, usually a letdown, taking a strip of bone out along the lateral aspect of the bony vault, and then doing some type of sob- subdorsal work to allow the impaction, basically, of the upper two-thirds of the nose. So if with surface techniques, basically this involves dorsal modulation of the mid-vault without impaction osteotomies. So there's no pushdown nor letdown. And this would be the spare-roof technique <clears throat> by Ferriera and Ashida. And then you have foundational techniques. And this involves dorsal impaction where you're actually impacting the dorsum and pushing it into mm-hmm. the midface. And this requires osteotomy. So usually a lateral, transverse, uh, you know, ethmoid bone cuts or, or radix bone cuts, and then allowing a push down or let down of the upper two-thirds of the nose. So what I, at this point, you know, because it's it's evolving. As my rhinoplasty technique has evolved over 32 years, my approach to dorsal preservation, primary rhinoplasty has evolved. And I use surface techniques. I use a subdorsal Z-flap, which was initially introduced by Milo Lovashrit. Sh- and then the caudal technique or SBQR finoki. And so basically for the bones... For the letdown, I use bilateral bone strips, transverse osteotomies, and an oblique green stick type of radix osteotomy. Mm -hmm. And we do use the piezotone for select cases. Sometimes we'll do some rhino sculpture. So what's nice about this is you can see how I'm able to just literally pull the hump flat. I mean, when you do that the first couple times, it's incredible because basically what you're doing is you're freeing up the whole hump, making a gap Below and then you're basically pulling it down and fixing it in a in a in a straight dorsal orientation. Here's a patient with a dorsal hump, small one, V-shaped dorsal hump, underprojected tip. When I look at this nose, her issue is not her hump in her upper two thirds. Her ninety percent of her problem is her tip. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what I don't want to do is do something to the upper two thirds and create a problem there. Whereas her biggest issue is the tip. I mean, if I fix her tip and then I have an issue in the upper two-thirds, it doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, because her her upper two-thirds is not the issue. And that's why dorsal preservation makes so much sense to me is because it's a small hump. I can do a a dorsal preservation technique, bring that hump down, and then spend most of my effort on the lower third where she has most of her issue. So what we did in this case is a subdorsal Z-flap as Milos described. You can see she has cephalically oriented lateral cura, a very long intermediate curl segment. We do the subdorsal Z-flap and we pull that posterior and caudal. These are some markings on base cadaver images from the Palhazi Daniel cadaver textbook. It's an excellent textbook. Uh, This, again, is a modification of Milos' technique where we make these cuts. We make a subdorsal cut underneath the hump itself and then connect it to the radix osteotomy uh, and then we pull that down posteriorly and caudally and then we can still harvest cartilage below it hmm. you can see we put in a septal extension graft in at this point in my progression i was using the testin chakra uh, radix saw and then uh three millimeter osteotome for the lateral and then here we release the lateral curve, put in lateral strut grafts little onlay graft over the tip and then here she is 10 months post-op you can see the tip is improved. Her hanging infra tip lobules corrected, but on lateral view, we just simply removed the dorsal hump, raised her tip, and then gave her a nice little super tip break. Here's her three quarter view, and then here's the base view. When you look at the frontal view, she's just a teeny bit wider, but she was really narrow pre-op, so this is a is a good patient because she can afford to have a little bit of widening in that mid vault area, which actually in her improved her nasal airway. Now I do primary let down, primarily let down. Basically that's a bone strip taken out, which allows us to remove all the blocking points, including Webster's triangle. And you can see what happens there is because you're taking these strips out, you're creating a gap. Mm-hmm. And then it's connected to the transverse and radix osteotomy. So now I can just push that hump down because there's a gap below. Here's a patient with a deviated nose, pretty significant deviation. In this type of patient, we would take the hump down, Joseph technique, and then we would either uh, put in significant spartographs grafts to try to straighten her. And it, it, it's, it was difficult. Mm. This type of nose was difficult to straighten because you're just trying to basically, in many ways, straighten the septum by splinting. And sometimes that's not as effective as you'd like. So in this case, I used a subdorsal Z-flap. Septal extension graft, here's the Z-flap sutured overlapping on the side opposite the deviation. I took a bone strip out on the side opposite the deviation to allow the bony vault to tilt to the midline. Here You can see the tilting effect. And then here she is eight months post-op. You can see her nose is straight. Her bulbous tip is improved. On lateral, you can see her dorsal hump is gone. Here's her three-quarter view. Here's her base view, and then close-up frontal view. So again, we were able to correct her deviation, correct her airway, narrow her tip, and do that by staying below the dorsum with respect to her upper two-thirds manipulation. Another patient with a very severe deviation, big dorsal hump, very severe caudal sepal deflection. So in this case, I used a caudal technique or an SPQR, the type technique. So basically what we do is Completely release the septum, ethmoid, vulmar, maxillary crest, nasal spine, and rotate it caudally, only leaving it attached to the upper lateral cartilages and mid-vault. Here you can see his cartilages, you can see the caudal septal deflection. We we do the um, radix osteotomy and and bone strip out on the left side. And this is the caudal technique. Basically, it's an incision that releases the septum from the ethmoid, vomer, floor of the nose, little strip gets taken out below the bone, and then it's rotated caudally, trimmed as needed. We take out a bone strip on the side opposite, and then we put in some lateral curl strut grafts. And then here he is 10 months post-op. Now the key maneuver here is to re-attach the septum after it's rotated and then fix it to the nasal spine. Mm-hmm. That's key maneuver to preventing type of problems. But you can see the nose is straight, lateral view, the hump is gone. That's without anything done to the dorsum anteriorly along the leading edge. It's all being done subdorsally. Here's a three-quarter view, and then the base view, we're able to place the septum in the midline and open his airway bilaterally. And then here's his close-up frontal view. So, so basically Cameron the, the this is a pretty big transition for me because you know I'm in I'm 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 62 I'm going to be 63 you know I've been in when I made the transition I was 30 years in practice so for someone who's 30 years in practice to make this dramatic change in their technique for managing the upper two thirds it, it was pretty significant and it was a little daunting initially but I know it was the right decision
1: Okay. So, I mean, that's remarkable. What, what I don't get with that is I understand with the SPQR and releasing the entire septum to bring it forward, with, with Milosz's Z incision, I don't get how you can, is it because you've taken a strip out that you now can bring it down and re-approximate it onto that septum? Because you, you're not changing the, the projection in any way with Milosz's technique. But you could potentially with SPQR be changing the projection as well because you're bringing the whole septum forward.
0: Yeah, so with Milos' technique, basically when you pull down on that Z-flap, you're either overlapping on one side to create space to allow it to pull down or you're taking a strip out to allow it to pull down midline and re-suture.
1: Okay, I understand. So
0: basically, the subdorsal Z-flap is in many ways, it's like a mini-cottle. So instead of taking the whole septum, they're just taking a little triangle right underneath the, the hump. So, you know, in, in a way, it's a modified caudal, but it's limited to a small triangular resection right underneath the midvault, vault and, and that's the beauty of it, because in many ways, it's similar um, to, for instance, um, to other techniques such as these, uh, the Tetris technique, okay, that um, in the Tetris technique, basically you're pulling a structure down, but it's rectangular as mm. opposed to, and that's Carlos technique, where he pulls it down, mm. and re-sutures. In, in many ways, it's similar. The concept is you have something to grab on, pull it posterior pro- caudally, and then re-suture. Okay. And that gives you a lot of lot of uh, power with respect to movement of the hump.
1: Yeah, you know, Miguel was actually our first uh, ever interview on the Rhinoplasty podcast. So, a question there. So, you can actually, by back to the Z um, incision, you, by attaching it to side on side instead of on top of each other, you can actually also use that to try and change the rotation. I mean, the, 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 if there's a angulation of the nose, that you can try and straighten that out. Yeah. Okay.
0: Right. And that's the power of it. You know, when I first started doing dorsal preservation, I did it because of hump reduction. Mm -hmm. But hump production is, in my opinion, a smaller component. I think a bigger component is the ability to fix axis deviations by overlapping. Mm -hmm. It's really quite remarkable on how effective it is in straightening the nose. Mm -hmm. Until you start doing it and see the effect on the deviated nose, you, you, you have no clue. You just don't understand the potential power behind it. And so, in fact, you know, before when I used to do uh, Joseph Hump Productions and reconstruct with spreader graphs, it was always a problem when there's a deviation. But now I think it's a positive almost if you have a little axis devi- deviation because you then allows you to overlap your segment and overlapping creates a stronger bond because there's two areas of cartilage that are overlapping each other and then being sutured, which creates... Mm-hmm a cartilage cartilage bond so i think it's even
1: better okay so two quick questions there what suture material do you use
0: i use uh one or two four pds sutures okay
1: and then the next question so if you don't when you're doing this preservation you're not actually dissecting above the dorsum and you're trying to keep that skin soft tissue envelope as natural as possible because you're just pulling everything down However, if you're going to start having to do the osteotomies or the piezotome, for example, you have to widely open up to get space. So the question is, if it's only on the cartilage that you're pulling it down, as opposed to the push down or the let down, are those two different techniques of dissecting?
0: Yes, so there's a lot of variations and options when it comes to how you dissect your skin envelope. For instance, in most cases, what I'm going to do is do absolutely no skin dissection over the dorsal. I'm going to do the radix osteotomy from below. So I'm going to push the, angulate my two millimeter osteotome, make a green stick radix osteotomy. I'm going to do the transverse osteotomy through small stab incisions along the lateral wall of the nose. Then I'm going to do the bone strip removal through, through either a piriform aperture incision or you can do it through your open approach the way Goxel do it, does it. So Basically, you can leave the majority of the skin attached to the dorsum. And then the advantage for that is when you take the cast off, the skin's never been elevated. So the dorsum looks the way it's going to look, basically. On the other hand, if you're going to do a surface technique, for instance, like I did last week, I did um, the the Ferreira, Ishida, Spare Roof B-type technique. In that situation, you raise the skin widely in a subperiosteal plane, and then you use the piezotome to do all the bony work. And then you just, I I use the suction drain just to make sure there's no blood collection. Yeah, so it's a completely different operation with differing amounts of of dissection. But the thing is, is if there are so many options, and that's why I think it's it's difficult for the person who's learning, because, you know, you look at the nose and you say, well, which technique, which dissection, subperichondrial, superperichondrial. There's a lot of nuance, and that's where you know the whole all the teaching all the lecturing all the videos that people can see the better off they're going to be mm-hmm. and you know i i i think the options are numerous the the uh, amount of difference you can create in your in your technique and approach based on the anatomy it's really very flexible and it gives you a lot of options
1: okay prof one last question around this is for the listeners, where would you advise them the best way for them to be able to actually get videos to watch? Um, because it's it's good to hear, it's good to read. I mean, there's great articles that, that have been coming out, but actually to be, for, because many listeners are around the world, they can't get necessarily get to congresses and watch live surgery. But what would be, are you planning on putting a few videos together for us as well that we'd be able to buy and watch you operating?
0: Yeah. So a couple things. One is I think you should get dorsal preservation or the preservation rhinoplasty book uh, edition three. I think it's an excellent book. I read it from cover to cover. Uh, There's no videos with it, but it's, it's excellent. It's an excellent resource to to learn the basics and then understand preservation rhinoplasty. With respect to videos, uh, there are videos out there. um, In the app with our book, we have at least over, uh, over, over a half dozen videos, I have a full length operation that I did. I'm putting another one on. We've got bars Chalker. Goxel's going to contribute one. You know, we've got East Saban. Um, we've got Aaron Cousins, who who's probably got one of the biggest experiences in the U.S. with uh, preservation rhinoplasty. Um, and so there's a lot of material out there. You just you just have nowhere to get it. And um unfortunately there's not a huge amount that's easily accessible right now, but if you're interested in the textbook, it on my app with the textbook, there's a lot. Fantastic. A lot of presentations, a lot of videos. So it's it's really a good way to, to
1: teach yourself how to do this. Okay. Awesome. Well, uh, prof, we've done two of the topics now. I think we're gonna carry on. Um, the listeners have got another eight to go. The next topic is gonna be about uh nasal tip contouring. If I'm here we go.
0: Yeah, so basically in order for you to do surgery on the tip, you have to understand what your goal is. And then you have to also understand that the shadowing that strikes the nasal tip is what creates the shape. It's the shadowing. So we have to know what's normal. What we don't want is a pinched look. What we want is a balanced look, which looks natural, as you see in the image on your right. We did publish this paper on nasal tip contouring uh, in 1996, or 2006, excuse me. And uh, this is a paper which really talks about this concept of not necessarily narrowing the tip, but shifting the shadows around to creating a horizontal-oriented light reflex, a little super tip shadow, suprailer groove shadowing, but no shadow that distinctly isolates the tip lobule. That's what we don't want. When you look at what shadowing does, if you look at the image on your right, this is an image I picked off Pinterest, you can see what makeup artists do is they put these darker shadowing along the lateral wall of the upper two-thirds of the nose to create uh, a fusiform type of contour with it narrowing at the mid-portion and then slightly widening as you come to the base. And then there's a a very bright arch that goes from lobule to lobule. Mm -hmm. What you don't want is the right image where the shadow comes down and it creates a shadowing between the tip lobule and ailer lobule because that isolates the tip. If you isolate the tip, that creates a ball look, which is what is abnormal. Uh, here's, here's what happens when you, sha- when, you, when you put the shadowing on and then you kind of rub it in. So look at the difference between the image on your far left and the image on the far right. No surgery was done there. All that was done was makeup, shadowing. And you can see how it, the tip looks smaller because the shadowing achieved that, but left an arch of bright reflection across the dome as it meets the other lobule. If we can kind of put this image in our mind and understand that this is what we want to create when we do our surgeries, you're going to have better looking tips. Mm. When we look at this, uh, there was a new beauty issue in September of 2013 where they took some celebrities with really good looking noses, all natural Um, But when you look here, you can see that this brow tip aesthetic line comes down, narrows a little bit at the mid-vault, and then flares as you get to the tip. And that's a uniform look in a good-looking nose. Another situation, brow tip aesthetic line comes down, flares just a bit at the base. Another one, brow tip aesthetic line comes down, flares just a bit at the base. In a wide tip, brow tip aesthetic line comes down and flares at the base. What's What's good about this nose is the flare occurs at the bottom of the nose, not in the super tip area. If it mm-hmm. occurred in the super tip area, then you're looking at a bulbous appearing nasal tip. Brow tip aesthetic line comes down, flares at the base. So that line comes down, narrows a bit, and then widens down below. If it's a vertical line that goes straight down, that's not what we want. So let's just talk a little bit about this nasal contouring uh, concept.
1: Yeah, I think that that is what sets apart somebody who's you can see has had a rhinoplasty, and perhaps somebody who's starting to do a rhinoplasty with someone who's done very well. I mean, I love looking at um, Barish's Instagram views, and I think to myself, how on earth does he get this? This is like on the table result. Um, and yeah, it's I think. That's the one thing. And then the other thing is I've, I was always taken by Spencer and Rod when I visited them in Dallas to see how much time they spend on getting that, like the diamond tip and getting the those light reflexes correct. Um, I think it's probably the most difficult thing in rhinoplasty is getting the tip correct.
0: I would agree, but it's not, I think it's easier now than it was before. And the reason being is because we have a distinct goal. Before, I think people were just taking dome sutures or a tip graft and just pinching the tip and just making it narrower. Hmm. Now we understand that it's not just narrowing. It's far beyond and more complex than narrowing. It's more of this shifting of shadows, getting rid of the supra ailer or super tip fullness, and then bringing volume and structure to the lower third as the tip itself transitions out to the ador lobule. And if we understand that, and there's a lot of different ways to get there, just depends on what you prefer. But as long as you understand what the end point is, that's so critical. So, mm-hmm. you know, and people who are beginners, if they're just narrowing the tip, they're they're missing the boat. It's far beyond that. It's not just narrowing. It's It's tilting the cartilage, so the caudal margin comes up, bringing the cranial margin down. We can do that with suturing. We can put alarim grafts in. You can do Mm -hmm. lateral strut grafts, and there's a lot of ways to get there, and that just depends on what you decide as the surgeon is your technique or your method to get to that Mm endpoint.
1: One last question there, Prof. In terms of, we, we, we spoke now about angulating the lateral crura, but how often are you using some kind of alorim graft?
0: I use rim grafts in probably about 5% of cases. So it's not that frequent. And the reason is because I'm using the lateral prostruct grafts mm. as, instead, because I, I just prefer them. I think they're stronger. I think they do multiple things. And the other reason is I don't like to dissect the pre-marginal vestibular skin. I think... The, the skin that's caudal to the marginal incision, it's kind of like a, it's a cushion. It allows you to keep an area of cushioning between any graft and your alar margin. And I think if you have a cushion, it's going to be safer. It's going to be less likely to create deformity. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, you know, normal noses don't have cartilage there. And so if we put cartilage there, we're creating a situation where you could evert the nostril, you could see a fullness there, you could evert the hair follicles so the hair starts sticking out of the I mean, there's a lot of weird things that can happen. And unfortunately, I'm seeing more of that, and that's why my preference is to stay away from the caudal margin of the, of the, of the, of the, or the alar the margin, leave the pre-marginal vestibular skin alone. Because it's there's certain parts of the nose, in my opinion, that that we shouldn't violate or should minimally violate, and that's one of the areas that I believe we should try to leave it ta- uh, intact. So sure. that's interesting.
1: Okay, let's let's get on to the fourth topic, Prof.
0: Okay, so when I look at my long term outcomes really critically, hmm. the patient you see on the right is a patient who's 20 years post op. She had a dome suture with alar rim grafts. What do you see? You see ailer retraction. Now, when I was doing this, I did dome suture, ailer trim, or dome sutures with cephalic trim. um, actually, no ailer room graft. And so what happened over many years is because of a lack of lateral compartment support, the ailer margin just creeped up. You know, it doesn't happen in six months. You may see a little bit at, at a year, but these are things that you'll never see. If you don't follow your patients, Hmm. you know, so what's long-term? I mean, I think long-term is 10 plus years. Hmm. I mean, I just think it's 10 plus years. Sure. If you're in practice for five, you don't have that kind of follow-up, but I, I see a lot of patients who are beyond 15 years of follow-up and I look at them very carefully. I look at their pictures very carefully. I, I, I look at their airway very carefully because I always want to try to evaluate what the long-term outcome Hmm. was. Now, the thing is, is I noticed that because of this deficiency in the lateral compartment, I, I moved to a to a technique which creates better and stronger lateral compartment support. Mm-hmm. So I started to use lateral post graphs grafts in the 90s. This was initially um, introduced by Jack Gunter. And basically... And most patients were doing lateral strut grafts without repositioning, but it's a graft that provides you with tremendous lateral compartment support and really good support to your uh, nasal valve. Here's a patient with a dorsal hump, bulbous tip, a little bit of a bulbous tip on base. You saw in her, she had pretty normal positioned lateral curve. So it's a relatively straightforward operation. I put in a lateral strut graft, dome suture, no rim graft because I don't need a rim graft, because she's she's got really good lateral compartment support. Um, in her, I did a Joseph Hump production with a spreader graft. Uh, you can see the lateral strut graft going in. We just dissect along the caudal margin of the lateral crust, and you can see where those grafts are located. They're sitting pretty pretty much right along the caudal aspect of the lateral crust. And then we put our dome sutures in, which swings the, the cephalic margin of the cartilage down and elevates the caudal margin. So what we're doing is adding structural support to the lateral compartment in this young patient, but we're not violating any of the pre-marginal vestibular skin. And here she is two years post-op. You can see her tip is less bulbous. Here's her lateral view with her dorsal hump taken down. Here's her three-quarter view. And the base view just shows a really good triangular shape to the base. This is what I'm looking for on the base view. Mm -hmm. A narrower tip, not pinched, just narrower. Mm-hmm. No depression between tip lobule and alar lobule, and a good open airway. And here's your close up front of you. You can see how the mid vault's appropriately shaped. The tip flares out at the base, good symmetry of the base, and good uh, width of the base. And what we're, again, what we're trying to achieve here is a brow tip aesthetic line that starts a little wider at the radix. Narrows at the mid vault and then flares out at the base where we have our good support between tip lobule and ailer lobule. Another patient with a deviated nose, bulbous tip, dorsal hump, she has some weakness in her lateral compartment. So, in her, we put in a uh, col extension graft, lateral cross strut graft. You can see she's uh, moderately cephalically positioned, put in a septal extension graft, and then we put in our lateral cross strut grafts. Now, if you look at the tip on the right, this is the shape I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. It's basically a flat lateral criss, zero cephalic trim. Nothing's removed. Mm -hmm. All the cartilage is there. Uh, A flat lateral criss. the caudal margin gets tilted up a little bit with the lateral criss strut graft. It's totally flat. And then just a little dome suture to bring the domes into position with that gentle little flare between the intermediate or middle medial cura. And that leaves her with a natural-looking nasal tip that's less bulbous. Lateral view has adequate projection, a little bit of rotation. Here's her three-quarter view. Base view, again, shows good transition from tip lobule to ailer lobule. In front view shows good transition from tip lobule to ailer lobule. Good preservation of her soft tissue triangle facets. And just a natural-looking tip. And so... Um, you know, here's a patient where we reposition because she has a lot of asymmetries in her cartilages. The picture on the right is her post-op picture. And so what we're trying to accomplish is lifting the caudal margin up and bringing the cranial margin down.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Now, I talked about this briefly, this pre-marginal zone of skin, caudal to the marginal incision that's that buffer zone of forgiveness. That's the area that my preference is, is to leave it alone. Mm-hmm. It protects against that graft visibility, protects against the form of the ailer margin. Um, if I do put a rim graft in there, it's going to stay closer to that incision, and it's going to be a very narrow pocket. I don't dissect as close to that ailer margin as one may think. The power of lateral curl repositioning is absolutely amazing for bringing the ailer margin down. Mm-hmm. The key, though, is to have a midline pivot point, and then your pocket is dissected where that red stippled area is. Mm-hmm. So it goes down inferiorly. The key, though, is that whole green stippled area that is left undissected. If you leave that area undissected, the the connection between the pivot point and your Distal end of your lateral pocket, and then the graft that goes through that junction forces the alar lobule down. And that's why it's so powerful for alar retraction or a high arched ala in a primary patient. And that's again a reason why I like to leave that area undissected. When we make our pocket for the lateral coral reposition, it starts at the marginal incision laterally and goes caudally right down the superalar groove. So if you look here, that area is undissected
1: mm-hmm. the
0: angulation goes down towards the upper lip totally undissected and then here's a patient who we did a cephalic we had uh, cephalic positioning collapse on her base view and see her cartilage is going up at 19 and 20 degrees so we reposition her with lateral costruct grafts. and here she is eight years post-op with improved tip contour lateral view with dorsal hump reduced here's her three-quarter view Base you a little bit of asymmetry to her polyamella, but her airway's wide open. When she breathes in, she doesn't collapse anymore. And that's very important from a functional standpoint. And then the brow tip aesthetic line comes down, flares a little bit at the base. And that's what we're trying to achieve. So let's just talk about this a bit, Cameron.
1: Okay, that's great. Um, <clears throat> I have a question around Wolfgang Gubisch, who, who's, who published about the turn under and the turn over, turn in flaps. What is your opinion on that? Because Sometimes if, you, if you're if you doing an open technique and you put spreaders in, you've put a septal extension graft, you might not have enough cartilage to do lateral crural strut grafts. What do you think about the turn under and turn in? Because one of the things that can dramatically do is change the shape of the lateral crura.
0: No, I think it's a good technique. I use it occasionally. Um, I use it particularly in patients who have very high vertical height. So the vertical height of the cartilage is very large. And they have kind of a rounder cartilage. And when I do um, flip that underneath, it tends to flatten it. But what I've found in at least the patients that I use the technique, they tend to, particularly if they're cephalically malpositioned, and then you do that technique, you'll still see a little fullness going up cranially towards the medial canthus because the cartilages are, it's difficult to get them to completely flatten. And so the other issue is, is when you do the turn under flap, you are, in a way, shortening the vertical height of the lateral cura. Mm-hmm. So the question is, is what happens to that nose if it, over 15, 20 mm-hmm. years? Does the ailer margin come up a little bit? I mean, we don't know. I mean, I don't know. And, mm-hmm. and I don't know if a lot of people who use that a lot have had enough follow-up to know that. So, you know... I think it's a good technique. I use it occasionally. But again, if I really wanna flatten the lateral crust and I really wanna get the shape I'm looking for, which is a flat lateral cross, completely flat, the caudal margin sitting up, the cephalic margin sitting down without losing lateral compartment support or compromising nasal mm-hmm. function, my preference is the lateral cross drug grab. And again, I have chosen that approach Based on my 20 plus years of follow-up of what I've done mm. and meaning cephalic trim, dome sutures um, and things like that. I, I just feel that sparing and preserving the entire cartilage, if possible, and then flattening it and getting the caudal margin up and getting a good support from tip lobule tail lo- lobule, in my opinion, it works the best for me.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think if, if you look at it with a toolbox, right at the top of the toolbox, lateral curl strutcrofts, I mean, those are essential, I think. Um, yeah, there's, there's not really much more to ask around that. It's, it's, it's been shown and it, it works. And it's, if you combine combining, I mean, you're doing so many things because you're strengthening the lateral sidewall, you're repositioning them, you, you're changing the shape of the tip, you're bringing that more natural look of what the tip's going to look like. It's, it's, yeah, it's essential to, to use that and know how to use it. When you upright,
0: right. When you say know how to use it, that's important because one of the things I've seen and heard is patients will, or surgeons will use lateral strut grafts and then they'll text me or email me and they say, Dean, you know, I did this case, I have lateral strut grafts and that you can see the lateral cura and the lateral strut grafts in the nasal vestibule. It's blocking the airway. The reason is because the lateral strut grafts need to be curved or flat, curved, slightly concave facing medial. If you don't do that then the lateral strut grafts can invert into the airway and create mm-hmm. blockage. So there are technical issues that are very important and when I see a failure because of use of the lateral strut grafts invariably that's the reason why. And the other thing is I understand that surgeons when they do tip work they want to do what's the easiest and and I I'm, I'm 100% behind that. <clears throat> Um, I I I support that. But the thing is, is if I'm operating on a sixteen year old or a twenty year old and I, I need a sixty year warranty, hmm. I'm thinking structure. Hmm. I'm not thinking just foul trim and dome suture. I'm thinking structure. If you're if you're not thinking sixty year warranty, then you can do these other techniques and they're gonna they're gonna work just fine. But I'm not thinking that way. I'm thinking Lifetime warranty. And so when you think lifetime warranty, your approach has got to be different. And that's just my opinion, 32 years in the practice. And it's based on a lot of different techniques observed over a long period of time, seeing the medial, the lateral wall move medially, blocking the airway and being very frustrated and having a frustrated patient. I don't want to do that anymore. I want to have a really good stable airway long-term outcome aesthetically and functionally. When I say long-term, I mean lifelong.
1: Right. Okay, good. Let's, let's get on to the fifth topic on the stages of healing.
0: So this is a quickie. So I believe there's three different stages of healing. I believe there's an immediate post-operative swelling stage. This lasts maybe three months or maybe one to three months. And basically what you'll see is a gradual reduction of the swelling Thinner skin, it's going to go down quickly in a month, maybe. Thicker skin is going to be maybe three months, but it's a gradual downward trend of a lot of uh, reduction of swelling. But then you have an intermediate stage. And here in this stage, you see fluctuations based on overheating, salt intake, alcohol intake, and inflammation. I'm going to talk about inflammation at the very end. All these things contribute to swelling during this intermediate stage, which I think goes from three months to nine months to a year. So, in that period of time, patients some days they're going to look good, and other days they're going to be puffy. If they went to a barbecue the day before and they had hot dogs, hamburgers, ketchup, and uh, potato chips, the next morning they're going to be swollen. I mean, I don't know how you get around that. Taping does help, but I don't know how you get around that. So fluid intake and food intake impact this intermediate stage of healing. So I tell patients, go ahead and have the hamburger and they have the ketchup and they have the chips, but you're just going to be swollen the next mm. day. It's not, it's it's going to come down, but you're going to be swollen. So then there's the third stage. That's the scar contracture phase of healing. It's most prominent in the thinner skin nose. This is when the skin envelope contracts over the underlying nasal structures there's a lot of variability on when this occurs or if it occurs. I mean, in a thin skin patient, I think it's going to occur somewhere around six months, nine months a year. Um, the exquisitely thin nose, it may occur in a month. Mm-hmm. The medium skin nose it's going to maybe occur a year. The thick skin nose, it may never occur. so these are these are issues related to healing which the surgeon has to take into account to modulate the healing process to get the maximal outcome. And these are things that I do considering the thickness of the skin, considering the early changes, which give me an indication of what stage they're in and then what I need to modulate, whether it be a steroid injection and a thick skin nose taping every night to treat, keep the swelling down and and keep the fluctuations to a minimum those are things, and then just promoting the anti-inflammatory diet in all patients who are undergoing rhinoplasty surgery.
1: Fantastic, Prof. We're we gonna. Um... So this is
0: this is just a patient that I want to show who's a long-term outcome. Here she has her tip. You can see that she has cephalically position, left lateral crus. We move her to twenty-eight and forty degrees, and then here she is nine years post-op. So she stabilized at around two years, and and she continues to be pretty pretty consistent up to nine years. Here's her th- lateral view. Here's her three-quarter view. On base view, what I did notice after about two years is that right dome flattened just a little bit, a little bit of a small tilt to the collumella uh, that occurred around the three-year mark. Um, but otherwise, frontal view looks good. Brow to prosthetic line looks good. And her tip structure in general is pretty symmetric. When you follow your patients greater than five, 10 years, you're gonna see little things, little changes, and you're gonna be surprised because you're gonna think that the nose is done healing at a year and that's far from what is really occurring.
1: Sure. Okay, so one or two things I just wanted to ask around that is I think um, Roxana especially has, has written a lot about uh, treating the skin before surgery and you know, what an effect that will have on healing afterwards. Um, I think at the same time, often we—I remember one of the old plastic surgeons in South Africa, Prof. Solomon, used to always say to me that you you must be very gentle with with when you're working. Don't just go in there and rip apart and work, because it's going to have an effect. And I think your actual technique can also have a big effect on a patient's outcome. How you treat them beforehand, how you're actually going to do the operation, how gently you are with the tissues, um, and then obviously it's the patient, as you were saying, the they and we're going to chat about that a little bit later about the diet, et cetera, et cetera um so i 'm not quite sure what i 'm trying to ask you, but I, but I think it's a, it's a it's a complex thing with what he how healing affects, and it, it's coming back to the point where you said earlier that after a year, only thirty percent of the healing's taken place in the patient's nose
0: yeah, i mean it is complex, and that's why. You know, it's kind of confusing to the patients if they go to the Internet and the Internet says that the nose is done healing at a year. And I try to explain to them, you know, that's not the case. I mean, when you actually follow your noses, you're going to see changes, significant changes beyond a year. Mm -hmm. And again, it depends on the technique you use and the amount uh, and the skin thickness. But as long as the patient is made aware pre-op and then the surgeon's aware of these potential changes, then I think these things can be handled, modulated. And controlled to some extent, and that's really the important thing: is what you're what you're shooting for, and how you're going to get there, based on what if it's pre-op, like you mentioned with uh, you know Roxana using Retin-A or post-op taping, steroids, things like that to control um, the healing post-op.
1: Okay, this is good. Okay, well, Prof, thanks so much. Now we can carry on with it. And topic number six.
0: All right, so. This is something that is really somewhat a, a, a disturbing. I, I just think it's very disturbing because I, I see, you know, my practice is, is more secondary than primary. So I see a lot of patients who've had multiple prior surgeries, and there's just an alarmingly high incidence of nasal obstruction after rhinoplasty, you know, loss of lateral wall support, narrowing of the nasal airway, nasal valve uh, stenosis, progression of Deterioration of the nasal function over a period of years. You know, I think what's happening is to some extent, I think surgeons are getting so focused on the aesthetics, they're maybe neglecting the functional component. And this is, it's a problem. I mean, if you're going to do rhinoplasty, you have to, in my opinion, respect the function to the same extent as the aesthetics maybe even more because think about yourself think about if you normally have no difficulty breathing through your nose and then you get an upper respiratory tract infection and you're laying in bed and your nose is stuffed and you can't breathe just think about how unpleasant that is and just think about how a patient who had good breathing Underwent rhinoplasty, and then has difficulty breathing after surgery. Just think how that could impact the quality of their life. I think as rhinoplasty surgeons, we need to really be empath- empathize to this these patients and understand the impact on their life. I mean, I, I see patients who they've had surgery, their nose looks pretty good, but they can't breathe, and they're miserable, and they're worrying. Trying to wear breathe right strips, but the tape is causing, uh, you know, their skin to break down. They're putting these things in their nose, which causes irritation. The consequences of compromised nasal function after rhinoplasty are huge. They're absolutely huge. And I would say, of all the secondaries that come to me, probably well over seventy percent have an airway issue. That's that's huge, and and it's really. Not necessary. So people ask, people must say, well, why do you use lateral construct grafts? Well, because I don't want to have my patients have that problem, because I want that little extra lateral compartment support so they don't have a problem years down the line, because I understand how uncomfortable that could be. And so if we're going to do rhinoplasty, you you, you need to be looking at the airway, you need to be considering the consequences of your maneuvers. If you just do a dome suture alone in a cephalic trim, in certain patients with certain anatomy, you're moving the lateral wall medially. And that's not where it's going to stay because every time they breathe, negative inspiratory pressure pulls it in more. You see the superalar pinching occur over time. Maybe the ailer margin comes up and the lateral wall medializes and the nasal function goes south. It's just, it's inevitable in a lot of situations. So what you need to do is do things to prevent that from occurring. Uh, maybe just don't do sphenoid trim, support the lateral wall. Um, don't do reductive techniques in the tip area. But use a PROM, patient-reported outcome measure, a nose questionnaire. Use use Sam Most uh, Schnoz, um, whatever it takes. But do this: have the patients do it pre-op, have them do it post-op. This allows you to evaluate how the patient's nasal function is post-op. You can have them do it on an iPad. This is critical because if you don't do this and you're not looking in the airway, and you're not asking the patient how's their breathing, you, you don't see or maybe you're ignoring the fact that they can't breathe because their nose looks great. And that's not right. It's not right. It's not looking at the complete global outcome after a patient undergoes rhinoplasty. So this is the nose questionnaire, uh, the schnoz. We do both. We do the nose and the schnoz. that allows you to evaluate a patient's breathing post-op. You know, here's a patient who comes in. She had prior rhinoplasty. She has complete collapse of the right mid-vault, right nasal bone. So she has really severe airway obstruction. So we do lateral construct graphs. We do spreader grafts. Here she is in a year and a half post-op. You can see she has improved shape over tip. Here's her lateral view. Here's her three-quarter view. On base use, she has complete support to her airway with the lateral struct When she breathes in, she doesn't collapse anymore. Airway is good. Brought up lines. In her, I made her just a little bit wider in the mid-vault because 90% of her issue was function. Um, when I have a patient who comes in and their complaint is, you know, more than 60% function, I am taking a little extra effort to make sure the airway is maximized mm. because this is a patient who, if I'm going to give them a lifetime warranty, their airway has to be good for the rest of their life. And that's not easy to accomplish. So you need to really work at that. We can talk about this for a minute,
1: Cameron. Yeah. So I'm all for uh, problems with patients. One of the other things that I do a lot is every single patient I do rhinomanometry testing. So that's from the Germans, the fourth phase rhino monometry testing, both the inspiration and expiration, because I think this is critical. And I'll never forget the first international congress I went to was that uh, in Versailles about five years ago, the IMR Hiss and um, um, the, the keynote address with Bauman, the first one, he showed these slides of three beautiful results before and after. And he said, look at the difference. In the first three photographs, all of them had their mouths slightly open. And the second one, their mouths were all closed. And he said, if you do not fix the airway, you should not be doing rhinoplasty. And that had major impact on me from the start of my career, as it were.
0: Yeah, nasal function, I I think, is, is being moved aside in a lot of situations, and it it needs to be brought back to the middle of the front stage. It has to be on your mind when you're doing your surgery. You have to be checking it throughout the surgery and you need to follow your patient's post-op because if you're damaging their nasal function, um, you're, you're really compromising your, your global outcome. And so uh, you really need to look at them long-term too. I mean, what you see at, at, Six months is not long-term. I mean, what you see at six months versus five years, they're going to be very different.
1: Mm. Yeah. No, and and the good thing, what I try and do is the same schnos and nose score that the patients have filled out, uh, the same piece of paper, they must fill that in at six months, at one year, at two years to see if there is any difference. That, that, because it's, you know, we, that little saying, we, we judge ourselves on our intentions, but others on their actions. And if if the patient actually gets the opportunity to respond to us, then it's quite a humbling experience when you think, look at how I've improved the patient, they're actually not happy with what you've done for them.
0: Yeah, it's so important. And it can't be neglected. So let's just look a little bit on the ethnic rhinoplasty side. So in most ethnic patients, we're talking about augmentation, and this is not what's actually done. And most uh, management ethnic patients there are a lot of people are still doing reduction. It's a different operation. It's a different approach because these patients tend to have thicker skin. And so in many situations, that skin needs to be advanced anteriorly, stretched a bit to get thinning and to allow you to see an improvement in the front view. So it's very minimal of, uh, of reduction. And a lot of these patients I'll uh, use rib cartilage. Now here's a patient who is a primary. She has a very wide, thick skin nasal tip. You can see the base view. Uh, thick skin requires strong projection into that skin. So she had a nice piece of septum. So we used a septal extension graft, lateral strut grafts, little cephalic trim, and a little onlay graft over the domes. Here's our tip cartilages. You can see the soft tissue pad in the super tip area. We take that out. Um, then we put in our septal extension graft, um, and then we put in some lateral strut grafts. And then we bring the domes a little closer together, but it's projecting into that thick skin. We do a little lateral ailer base reduction. And then here she is five years post-op. So you can see the change Mm -hmm. in the tip shape. And that's because her nose is being projected. The structure of her nose is being projected into that thicker skin. On lateral over you can see the nose is actually bigger post-op, but it's balanced. That's the thing. You can make a nose bigger, but it has to be balanced. so what I do on these thicker skin noses is, is I compromise a bit on the lateral view aesthetics to make sure the frontal view looks good. I'll repeat that. I compromise a little bit on the aesthetics of the profile to maximize the frontal view. What you don't want to do is make reduce the lateral view and then get a compromise mm-hmm. in your frontal view appearance. Because obviously... With this selfie age and people looking into computer screens, you need to have the front view look its best. And the way you do that is you project structure into the thick skin to stretch it and create shape. Here you can see on front of you, you can see how that thickness of that skin uh, has been stretched to create a better shape and a better contour. Another patient with very short nose, very thick skin, a lot of nostrils show in front of you, very, very difficult Asian nose. So in her, we use a a big piece of rib cartilage because she has very small septum. You can see her lateral cura are very, very weak. This is just a short video that just shows how I use shield grafts. Um, We haven't abandoned the use of shield grafts. I use lateral cura grafts to support the cranial margin I use the shield grafts primarily in uh, Asian patients and black patients, and this is done to stretch that thick skin envelope and create contour. Um, those are off at about a 30 degree angle uh, off the back of that shield graft. We suture some shield, uh, soft tissue over the shield graft that creates a little more camouflage of that graft so it doesn't show up over time. And then we do use articulated rim grafts in this group of patients. They have a very huge pre-marginal skin uh, uh, expanse, which allows you to make a pocket there and not completely dissect that Mm -hmm. entire Mm -hmm. uh, vestibular, pre-vestibular skin area. And then I drop the rim graft into that pocket with the back blunt end of a 6-0 monocryl suture. I pull it in on both sides, get it pulled all the way down to the base of that pocket, and then we put it uh, in place, and then we pull the skin envelope over the top. Now, it's very tight, but that skin envelope <clears throat> is being stretched by the shield graft. You can see I'm just tying these knots mm. externally, and those will be clipped on the seventh postoperative day. Now, it is a tight closure, but I I want to stretch the skin. I want to stretch her skin envelope to create shape. She has um, a dorsal graft to complement the increase in projection. Uh, we fix that in place with a In her, I used a a uh, transcutaneous 0.26 threaded Kirchner wire. That's through a small stab incision that'll come out on the seventh day. Maybe a little bitty scar there, but usually not visible. A little composite graft in both marginal incisions. You can see the K wire up on top there. Uh, Here's the nose at the end. And then here she is three years post-op. You can see the improvement. In her dorsal aesthetic lines, I mean, they're much better because her bridge has been elevated. She has a much narrower, more defined nasal tip. On Latto, you can see how much bigger that nose is. But that's stretching the skin envelope, which is very thick and amorphous and gives her actual shape. Here's a three-quarter view. And then here's the base view showing good uh, contour. And uh, you can see how the base is narrower simply by projecting. All we did was project. And by projecting, the base of the nose gets narrower. And then close-up front of you shows the distinct brow lines on frontal view. Now, we do in some patients use premaxillary grafts. This is mm-hmm. something that isn't been, hasn't been discussed a lot. Uh, I think it's very good in the patient where you want to do plus three, greater than three millimeters of increase in projection. This patient had an implant that extruded through her nasal tip. has a very severe deficiency in her maxilla. So in this situation, we dissect between the medial down to the nasal spine, and we create a, a, a premaxillary graft, and this graft is going to sit right on the groove of the nasal spine, and it gets integrated with a caudal septal uh, extension graft, which goes right in the notch, gets set into position, and then we suture it down, and then we can advance the base anteriorly to open the nasolabial angle, and that creates a, a much improved Cayumella upper lip junction. And the contour of the upper lip is better. And then we put in a shield graft to get a little stretching of that thick skin envelope that's very scarred from the implant. And we take a little, uh, or a good-sized dorsal graft and place it underneath that thick dorsal skin, make a notch there and integrate it with the caudal septal uh, replacement graft. <clears throat> that creates the, the elevation of the dorsum. Very important here is the lateral curl grafts. These lateral Mm -hmm. curl grafts go above the lateral crust, get sutured to the back end of the shield graft, and then get sutured to the the tip cartilages. And then we put a little costal perichondrium over the tip graft just for camouflage. And here she is two years post op with improved dorsal aesthetic lines. Now you can see how that columella upper lip junction has been dramatically advanced. So her tip projection is plus five millimeters. Mm. And the only way to really get that is to advance the maxilla. You can't expand the, the, uh, the tip lobule that much. You won't be able to close the incision. And that's really important. Here's a three-quarter view. Here's a base view. Now we can discuss that a bit.
1: So the, the two things that just jump out at me there, because we obviously doing quite a lot of ethnic rhinoplasties in South Africa, is the this graph behind the shield graph onto the lateral crura, Because what frustrates me so much is if it's almost, if that's going to give this beautiful shape to the tip. Because if you don't have that, you kind of almost sometimes end up with like a ball shape of the tip. So that right. that's fantastic. Yeah, so
0: again, the concept is thick skin, ethnic nose, project, into the thick skin to stretch it, to create shape. Don't reduce We want to project into it. And that requires structure. And so that's why a lot of the Asian black patients will use, um, you know, rib cartilage.
1: So another question there, in terms of um, the maxillary, pre-maxillary graft, does that not irritate the patient at all when they, they can't feel it? Yeah, so,
0: so it depends on the anatomy. I have the patients, I look at their smile. I tell them that the upper lip's going to be stiff for about, you know three, four months or so mm-hmm. um, and then I tell them, "I can do this, and I can increase your projection this amount meaning greater than three millimeters, but I have to put this stabilization foundational graft underneath your base of your nose. And then if they say, "I'm fine with that," I sh- I, what I do is I take a Q-tip, our contip applicator, I put it right here and push down on the spine and have them smile. I tell them that's what it's going to feel like. Okay. And most patients who we need to get a lot of projection, they say, I'm fine with it. If the patient says, no, I don't want that. I don't want to change my smile. Then we just don't do it. We use a different technique and then we just don't get as much projection.
1: Yeah. I mean, we can t- chat about this ethnic rhinoplasty until the birds come home to roost. Yeah. But let's, let, let's let's move on and talk about revision rhinoplasty because I mean, this is your bread and butter is the revisions.
0: Yeah, so basically what I see a lot of when I do revision surgery on patients who have been operated elsewhere is I see a lot of situations where multiple grafts have been inserted and and basically placed on top of the existing structure. And that's the easiest thing to do. You just take a big piece of ear like you see here. You place it right on top of the existing scar structure. The problem with that is it, cre- it tends to push the airway medially because you're not correcting the foundational deficit. And this is a very important point to keep in mind if you're going to go into the realm of secondary rhinoplasty. I believe if you're going to do secondary rhinoplasty, you have to think more from the foundation outward. You have to think about what is the underlying structure, how can we fix it, make it stable, and then expand the skin envelope and open the airway. Those two things, expand the envelope and open the airway is very important. So my approach is basically reconstructing the foundation, increasing the lateral compartment support, lots of costal cartilage, and that gives the improvement in the aesthetic and functional outcome. I mean, it's more complicated. Granted, using rib cartilage, is there's a learning curve associated with it. But if you're going to do secondary, you need material. And I see a lot of patients who come to me and both ears are gone and the patient can't read, and they've had stacked cartilage, multiple layers of ear cartilage. They do better. They look better when the cast comes off. Every month goes by, the lateral wall moves medially. I know this. Because for the first five years of my practice, I used ear cartilage. Mm -hmm. I put in ailer band grafts made of ear cartilage or lateral curl grafts made of ear cartilage. And I watch those patients heal. The lateral wall moves medially, and then they have problems. And then I bring them back, and then I have to do a rib cartilage graft. So that was what I did early in the career. And if it failed, then I have to do the rib. So what I do now is I just go right to the rib. Unless they have septum, I go right to the rib. I use the rib. I create the foundation. Then, if they need a revision because of uh, asymmetry of the nostril—one margins up, one margins down—they have a little warping of a piece of cartilage. The revision is relatively minor. In fact, in probably sixty to seventy percent of cases, I can do it endonasally. I don't, but then I don't have to then do another rib or do a rib. What's really deflating to the patient is if you do ear and. So when I did ear, I would do the ear. They would come back four years later. They said, Dr. can't breathe. And then I tell them, in order to fix this, I need to take the rib graft. And they're devastated because now they have a bigger operation than they did in their initial operation. So what I try to tell patients is my approach is completely different. Now what I do is I say, okay, I'm going to use the rib. I'm going to create the foundation to your nose you may, you know, 10% of cases, you may need to have a little tweak. I explain that to the patients. But the tweak is relatively minor. And the structure, the underlying basic structure is there. And it's much easier for the patient, for them, because the recovery is a piece of cake compared to their initial surgery. And usually the airway is good. If the airway is not, I can tweak the grafts a little bit, maybe trim them, and then that can correct their problem. So the approach is very different than in most situations or most other surgeons because most other surgeons are doing ear and then and then and then seeing what happens. And in my situation, I'm not doing that. I'm going to the rib, I'm doing the foundational repair, and then and then if there's an issue, we do a minor revision. So here's a patient, she has airway issues, her nose is collapsing, particularly on the left. <clears throat> her cartilages are cephalically oriented and very deformed. She's got some alar retraction. So we put in some lateral grafts made of costal cartilage, move her to 40 and 36 degrees. That's what she looks like after at the end of the procedure on the left. And that's her nose with a harsh shadowing on the right. So you can see what we've done to change the appearance of the tip. And then here she is four years post-op with good brow tip aesthetic lines, improved nostril position. Here's a three-quarter view, and here's your base view. Airways wide open, no collapse, no airway issues, and then close-up frontal view. Uh, This is a – we all know this gentleman. It's a friend of mine. It's uh, Dr. Nassif, and he said it's okay to show his pictures, but um, he had a really big problem. He had a basal cell cancer removed on his left side of his nose, and so we had to recruit tissue to to correct that. So we harvest a piece of rib. You can see where that – Uh, area has been excised, and you can see the retraction of the alar margin because of the skin excision. So we go ahead and we do a uh, template of the normal side, and then we do a template of the normal alar lobule, and then we recreate that on the abnormal side. Uh, You can see the deformity in the tip. He had some overlap of his tip cartilages. We harvest the rib cartilage and cut in multiple segments we put in a caudal septal extension graft and then lateral curl replacement grafts and then lateral curl strut grafts. And then this is his tip towards the end of the procedure, but uh, we put a little onlay graft over the domes as well. But the problem now is his, you can see half his aler lobule is gone. Mm-hmm. It was removed when a basal cell cancer was removed from the right side of the nose. So we have to fix that, we need to reconstitute that. So I incised where the incision was made. I harvest the entire Simba concha from the right ear, so it's a big composite graft. And now we use an underlap technique to allow this graft to survive. So I take the graft and I make a smaller skin island and a very large ear cartilage segment that is without skin, but with the covering perichondrium, which enhances the influx of the vessels into that area. So here you can see the technique where the mucosa or the skin at the recipient site overlaps the perichondrium on the cartilage. We suture it in place to replace the missing portion of the left alar lobule And then we put a big composite graft in on the right side because there was significant alar retraction and vestibular skin deficiency on both sides. And then we put a big skin graft in the ear to replace that deficient segment. And then here you can see the graft at the end of the procedure, the underlap technique, and that will become vascularized very quickly because of the perichondrium surrounding the periphery of that graft sitting right underneath the vascular supply of the surrounding skin. Here he is two years post-op. You can see the alar margin is way down now, and that's because we've replaced that missing tissue. Here's a three-quarter view, opposite lateral view, three-quarter view, and the base view. And you can see the composite graft there, but um, it's healed quite nicely and even improved quite a bit over time.
1: Wow. Prof, that was that was fascinating because I know I know um, Paul's mentioned to me that, that you operated on him, but now I've actually seen what you did, and that's what what brings me to this this thing is, uh, uh, often guys are saying how quickly they can do a rhinoplasty. My understanding is just a normal primary rhinoplasty takes you a long time, and I think we need to bust that myth that you need to rush and operate and rush out. How long do you normally take when you? No, I'm not talking revisions. Just a normal primary rhinoplasty.
0: Yeah, so a normal primary rhinoplasty using open rhinoplasty with uh, structure techniques in the tip and dorsal preservation takes me about three to four hours. But um, you know, some of some of those good number of those cases were videotaping that adds a little bit of time. Uh, but most of the time, we we're talking about three to four hours. Um, the patients um that we do the primaries on I spend a lot of time with the tip reconstruction and mm-hmm. that's just because I want the tip to be really good the dorsal preservation stuff uh, as time goes by I get more efficient quicker at it um so sure it's it's kind of it's longer than most of my colleagues who are operating in adjacent operating rooms you know they're taking an hour and a half 2 hours but I'm doing more Okay. And so when you do more, it, it takes a longer time. And I am very, very meticulous. Mm-hmm. If something doesn't look right, I take it apart, I fix it. Um, see, my, my approach is there's two big things I'm thinking about with every operation, whether primary or secondary. Um, I'm thinking in my mind, I want one operation for this patient that's going to last their warranty again for the rest of their life. So I'm thinking, a certain way. And I'm thinking to myself, if it doesn't look good now, it's not going to look better post-op. So it has to look the best Mm. it can right at the time of surgery. So that may mean tweaking little things, adding little graphs here and there uh, throughout the operation. So when you think you're done, I'm frequently not done because I have to do a little bit more. And so that's what adds to the surgery. And the other thing is if I do a base reduction, it takes me 30, 30, Forty minutes. Mm. Um, if I do a composite graft, it adds about thirty to forty minutes. Mm. So all these little things add to the length mm. of the procedure. But I'm not going to cut corners. It's just rhinoplasty is an operation where you don't want to cut corners because the patient is is counting on you to give your best, to give them the best outcome, both aesthetically and functionally. And I think it's it's important for us to maximize their outcome in both the aesthetic and functional way, but do it in a way where you believe that you're going to give them the best long-term outcome.
1: That's absolutely true. I think it's slightly digressing here in terms of how long you're taking in surgery. Can I ask when you're consulting patients, how long do you also take in a consultation with a patient? Uh, that
0: depends on if it's a primary or secondary. Uh, most primaries, we take about 30 minutes. Um, you know, when you took about, when we talk about the imaging and all that, that adds time to the consult. Um, a lot of the patients I'm seeing nowadays, we do a virtual, and then they come for their surgery, and they would do a consult a couple days before. So they're getting two consult uh, sessions. Mm-hmm. Um in the secondaries, if particularly if it's complex, we're talking longer, you know, 45 minutes, maybe even a little bit longer. Um, but again, a lot of the patients are seeing me and hearing everything twice. And then the fellow comes in and goes over uh everything. So the fellow spends another 30, 40 minutes with them, and then my office manager spends another 20 minutes with them. So all, all out with uh, imaging, seeing me, seeing uh, getting all the pre and post-op information and the meeting with the nurse, you're talking about an hour plus for primaries and maybe an hour and a half for 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 secondaries.
1: Yeah. So the, for the listeners out there, now you've heard it from the best. Take your time consulting and take your time operating. You are going to get the best results. Prof, we've got the last two topics to go. I'm particularly excited about these two because as from next week, when the clinic opens, I can use my nano fat machine for the first time.
0: Yeah, so, uh, you know, when I talk about rhinoplasty, it's sometimes difficult for me to not talk a little bit about this because it really has changed my practice in a lot of ways. Because um, when we do rhinoplasty, particularly in secondaries, frequently we'll have situations where we we really stress the skin or the skin has already been stressed or compromised from multiple prior surgeries. And that creates uh, a conflict because we're trying to project, we're trying to get the tip out, but yet we have tension. And tension is always bad. Um, Or just the skin itself is damaged to the point where it's vascularly compromised. So that's why I, in many of these secondaries, even in some primaries, will use MISTA, which is micro fat infused soft tissue augmentation. So what we're doing is I am taking a microfat or nanofat, injecting it into a soft tissue carrier, which is either temporal fascia or costal perichondrium, and I'm laying it over the dorsum and or tip. And what that does is directly deliver the fat and the stem cells to the tissues. And I think this is really important in a lot of these patients. Um, there's a lot out there on the effect and the benefit of nanofat and the stem cells in fat. Uh, Tenard has one of the classic articles. Uh, in some patients, we will inject the fat into the tissues in a staged fashion. So we'll bring them in, harvest the fat, inject the nanofat into the tissues to help improve the vascular supply and then bring them back uh, over a period of time based on how their tissues are and then do their reconstruction now you just have to be careful because when you're injecting the same way as if you're injecting a filler you don't want to compromise the blood supply by 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 compressing the vascularity so you have to inject deep and then you have to be cognizant As soon as when you inject you have to look at the tissues see how they're reacting Mm -hmm. the advantage of using the mista Meaning the infused soft tissue and laying in the surgical site, you don't create any compression uh, of the dermis or the subdermal plexus in most cases, because it's being laid in the open surgical field and the skin's closed on top of it. And if a patient comes into you and you inject fat or nano fat into the skin, you potentially can be compressing the subdermal plexus. So you have to be very, very cautious. Um, We use a tumescent technique to harvest the fat. We use a local anesthetic with a a sterile injectable saline solution. I use a trees grater 2.4 millimeters uh, Sorensen liposuction cannula. We harvest primarily from the inner thighs or the abdomen. And then we spin it down for three minutes at 3000 RPM. And then we use either the uh, HK system or the TULIP system to create microfat and nanofat. And then these are very valuable, uh, for the, uh, rhinoplasties, particularly thin skin in patients with compromised vascular supply. So again, HK and tulip are the two options for the most part. Uh, we use the micro fat for thickening atrophic skin. So the micro fat is, uh, is basically a one millimeter, 1.2 millimeter uh, particle size, whereas the nano fat is 0.6 millimeters. So it's smaller, 600 microns or so. And that is what we use for the stem cells to recover damaged skin. The MISTA, again, is the infusion of the temporalis fascia with the, uh, uh, or costal pericondrium with the microfat, and you can place it under thin skin. So here's an example of a patient with uh, Wegener's granulomatosis. He's in remission. He's missing his entire septum, so he's got a significant compromise of the vascular supply to his nose, and that's just because the septum carries most of the blood supply to the skin envelope, and when you lose the septum, you lose that blood supply, so you have to be very careful in these patients. He's got contracture because of the contracture of the inside of his nose, the mucosa. Um, he is in remission, though, and you can zi- see the size of the perforation, so we ex- we expand the skin envelope we use costal cartilage, both in the caudal septal replacement graft integrated with a uh, big dorsal graft, and then we put uh, Mista temporal fascia infused with microfat over the entire dorsum and in areas of the tip around the composite grafts that we place. So here you can see the tip structure that yellow arrow points to the big subtotal septal perforation. We put in the costal cartilage with the perichondrium on the undersurface to get gain fixation to the underlying bone. The caudal septal replacement graft has perichondrium on the back surface. So that gets flipped around and that sits against the back edge of our, our, our uh, septal flap. So if it becomes exposed, it's protected. That's very, very important. Then we put in a um, notch in the, in the dorsal graft that integrates with the caudal septal placement graft. Here we're infusing the micro fat into the temporalis fascia. You can see on the left, we've Created the lateral wall. We've completely created the lateral wall of his nose because it was gone. So basically, that dorsal graft is sitting up above everything, and then we have to put lateral wall grafts to create a new lateral wall, and that gets covered with the costal pericardium infused with the micro fat. We put in composite grafts because he had a uh, severe contracture, and that allows me to get the alar margins down. Then we put the lateral wall splints on. He's got a K wire holding that dorsal graft in place. We take that out on the seventh post-operative day. And then here he is, two years post-op. You can see we've stretched that skin out, got his nostrils down. Mm. There's his lateral view with excellent projection. Here's his three-quarter view. And the base view shows that we reestablished his nasal airway. Um, So the other thing is hyperbaric oxygen. We do a lot of hyperbaric oxygen. It's basically three atmospheres of pressure with 100% O2 what this has been shown to do is to increase stem cells in patients' blood who are undergoing hyperbaric oxygen treatments. One treatment of hyperbaric for an hour increases stem cells in their blood. So if that's combined with the stem cells we get from the fat and the microfat and nanofat, you can get a really a significant response. So we put our patients in this two to three atmospheres, typically three atmospheres if they'll tolerate it, 100% O2, Uh, it pushes the oxygen levels in the blood to higher levels, decreases inflammation throughout their entire body, increases the stem cells, doubles essentially with a single one hour treatment. I have all this information on the microfat and uh, how it's prepared, how it's used. It's in the three volume textbook. Also, this other paper I published in Facial Plastic Surgery in 2017, um, it's very important to have this available to you if you want to do more complicated cases like this patient. This patient, multiple prior surgeries, had an infection, pus extruded through the tip area, total loss of all the cartilage in his tip with no very little tip projection. Very, very difficult case. So in this case, we use a caudal septal extension graft with a dorsal graft with lateral curl replacement grafts and a big, huge composite graft to replace the collumella. So here you see a rib graft with the native attached, attachment. Again, this is very important. The native pericardium is important to maximize the survival of the costal cartilage and also to minimize the chance of infection. Here you can see the tip uh, scar. I mean, that's a very severe contracted scar on the nasal tip. So we open the nose, you can see the contracture of the tip cartilages. Again, we leave that perichondrium on the posterior surface of that that goes against the posterior aspect of his septal reconstruction. Mm-hmm. That will enhance the, uh, the vascularization of that graft. Um, in this case, we put it caudally because it's going to sit right under the composite graft. And he had no cartilages, so we used costal perichondrium for the lateral curl replacement grafts. And then we put the lateral curl strut grafts in and we harvest the entire left conchal bowl, including the root of the helix. Put a big full thickness skin graft in there. So now I need to make a composite graft that's shaped like a bat. And it's actually gonna replace the, the most of the collumella as well as provide the lining to the nasal vestibule because you know everything's contracted. The vas- nasal vestibular skin is contracted. So there's a huge greater than one centimeter gap in your closure. There's there's a huge gap. So I place this composite graph using the underlapping technique. It underlaps the skin all the way around mm-hmm. and that's important because we want the blood supply to come into the perichondrium He he already has compromised blood supply because of his infection. And now we're putting a graft of this size into the compromised vascular recipient site. That's a tall order in this patient. So we underlap that area underneath the skin of the recipient site and the vestibular mucosa intranasally. Uh, Then we inject the nanofat all the way around this defect, all the way around the composite graft and underneath the scar. I want to push the scar out, expand it just to the point where it's going to blanch just a little bit, not too much, because you don't want to obviously compromise Mm -hmm. the blood supply. And then we put irrigation catheters in to prevent infection. But you can see the size of that composite graft. It's basically replacing probably 70% of the conie Here he comes in. This is on the seventh day when we take the cast off and take the irrigation catheter out. If you look at the right picture, you can see the composite graft's already blue, okay? So if it was dead, it'd already be black. It's not Mm -hmm. black. It's blue. It's got some blood supply in it. If I prick it with a needle, it's bleeding. That's at seven days post-op. And here he is uh, post-op, not quite a year yet, but you can see the tip scar has been corrected. One surgery in this patient. This tip projection has increased dramatically. Here's his three-quarter view. On his base, you can see where the composite graft has replaced the majority of his Cayumella. The scar in the tip on the right side is, looks like it's completely gone and his airway is open on both sides. And then here's his close up front over. You can see the scar that was really contracted pre-op is, is basically corrected. So we can discuss uh, briefly here.
1: <laughs> I don't know how much discussion is looking at that result. Sure, that's very brave. Eh? So, Prof, in his case, did you use hyperbaric oxygen as well?
0: Yes, yes. He had uh, six days of hyperbaric oxygen right after surgery. And then when he went home, he had uh, probably, I think, another three or four uh, hyperbaric oxygen treatments, one dive a day for an hour to an hour and a half. Um, I, I just, I'm a big believer in hyperbaric stem cells, the fat stem cells, it all together creates this synergy. And it's the synergy between these different stem cell uh, modalities, which Mm. allows you to do these complex cases. Um, You know, without it, that's a staged operation, at least two operations. I did that in one stage, big composite graft. Uh, But, you know, you you have to be, there's a lot of little nuance. You know, you have to be very cautious when you harvest the graft. You got to be cautious when you handle the composite graft. It has to be sutured perfectly. In other words, no buried skin, underlap technique, the underlap technique is huge. If you put it end-to-end with no underlap, that graft dies for sure. Mm. It's the underlap that allows the blood flow into the perichondrium that's sitting on top of the cartilage component of that composite graft that's sitting underneath the recipient site skin. Uh, that, with the stem cells, all these parameters, all these factors
1: help with survival and, and getting the outcome you need. Sure. Um, a question in terms of the nanofat and the hyperbaric, do you ever preoperatively do something? So get them into a hyperbaric chamber before surgery and potentially harvest fat and inject nanofat, uh, maybe it's on silly, but almost like to soften the skin and soften the scar before you have to do the yeah. operation.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. We'll do, we'll have patients who have compromised skin We'll have them do hyperbaric beforehand, maybe three dives. We'll frequently have patients who have really bad skin, you know, more than 10 operations, more than eight operations. What I'll do is I'll bring them in the office. I'll stick a 30-gauge needle in their tip with no anesthetic. I'll explain it to them, the reason why. And then we see if the skin bleeds. I know what type of of bleeding response uh, a nose should have. Hmm. If you stick a needle in a skin and it doesn't bleed, that's... That's a really bad sign. That means that skin is vascularly compromised. In those situations, then you can do subdermal deep injections of the nano fat. Um, maybe even twice. You har we can harvest the fat in the office. We can freeze it. We can do it. Give them an injection. Bring them back. You know, six weeks later, do it again. Expand the skin envelope. I just I just caution you and anyone who wants to do this when you inject. The nanofat into compromised skin. Number one, you inject very slowly. If you see a blanch, you back off. Mm-hmm. You back off and you wait. Um, you don't want to just dump a half a cc in under skin and compress the vascular, you know, the subdermal plexus and then get a skin necrosis, which is, is distinctly possible because you have compromised skin. And if you compress it, then you compress the ability for blood to get into that area. So, what I'll do is I'll do a little bit, look. Do a little bit more, look, and then we never do more than a CC. It's usually about a half a CC that goes into that area, and then boom, right, right off to hyperbaric. Uh try to do it the same day. We send them to hyperbaric, get a dive, get another dive, maybe a third dive. Um, they can do it at home. We set it up beforehand, and then this is this this combination creating the synergistic effect is very important.
1: Fantastic. Sure. Okay, prof lost topic. For the day very interesting topic uh, um, i know you've published a book on this as well so tell yes. us yes so
0: more. you know I, I have i've been on this diet myself for well over 20 years and uh, i put it all my patients on it everyone who undergoes rhinoplasty i tell them to go on the anti-inflammatory diet you know in a nutshell what it is is no sugars no simple carbs no bread no pasta no potato no rice um, And then you eat complex carbs, broccoli, cauliflower, asparagus. Um, You drink matcha. You drink matcha, green tea. Um, You do things to decrease the inflammation. Why is this important? The reason why it's important is inflammation. When you eat inflammatory foods, let's say you eat a piece of pizza, or even if you eat a bagel, or if you eat some rice because it's easy to eat and it's soft, or you eat a potato, or you eat a banana. It's inflammatory. So it spikes your glucose. It increases the inflammation on in your body. It increases the free radicals, which are not good for anything, whether it be your healing of your nose or, you know, development of arthritis, cancer, heart disease. All these things are linked. So what we want to do is take away the free radicals, con- modulate your immune system. We want the immune system to work for you. Not against you. And with respect to healing after rhinoplasty, if you increase the inflammation in your body by in, eating an inflammatory food item or drinking an inflammatory drink, your nose will swell. It just, that's how it works. If you stay neutral or stay anti inflammatory, it will accelerate the healing, decrease the swelling quickly, and it works to allow you to heal at a more rapid rate. And so I really pushed this for the patients. One of the reasons why I wrote this book, I wrote it during my two months off during COVID, uh, March and April of 2020. Um, When we wrote this book, I wrote it because I wanted a resource for my patients. Mm -hmm. And I wanted a resource that they could read. It has recipes in it. It has an app associated with it. And if you put patients on the anti-inflammatory diet, including minimizing salt intake, it's going to do huge positive things for their healing. It's very important. If you're interested in the book, you can get it at Toriumidiet.com. Um, I've been on it for a long time. It'll help your, um, it'll help your arthritis, your joint pains, your back pain, a lot of things. And then again, if you're interested um, in the, in the diet itself, there's other resources on the internet. Um, a lot of it is in the app that we have on the book, and it's just going to help your general health all around, whether it be your brain, your heart, your joints, your your major organs, or the healing of your nose.
1: Great. Well, Prof, I mean, for the, the listeners out there, I mean, we've, we've literally scratched the surface in the last hour and 45 minutes. And I want to encourage you that the, the cherry on the cake of this whole talk is Prof's three volume book. So just for the listeners, how can they get hold of this book? Um, because yeah, I mean every little thing we've spoken about is just fleshed out so much more with the book, with the app that goes with the book. Um, how do people get hold of this if they haven't yet?
0: Yeah, you can you can go to toriumirinoplastybook dot com. Um, it's basically um, I take you through thirty years of my rhinoplasty practice, and it allows you to see the evolution of the techniques how. And why we made the changes, and there's all these videos in the app that take you through every procedure. There's over 30 full-length operations, and then there's a lot, a lot of video and lectures and and written publications on uh, dorsal preservation and preservation rhinoplasty. So it's a really good resource. Um, You know, by for me, um, getting back to this rhinoplasty warranty, you know, my thought is. One, and done. I mean, that's my thought going into a case. That's my thought of finishing the case. I mean, it's just, yeah. Ha- I think you have to have this just for the benefit of your patients. They they deserve this type of approach. And then rhinoplasty, you know, it's a lifelong learning process. I mean, you you know, I, I like I said, as I made this transition to dorsal preservation after 30 years in practice. And now I think I'm so much better because of it. So part of this was because I looked at my post-op follow-ups, I didn't dwell on my good outcomes. I really studied the suboptimal ones. And by doing that, it led me in the direction that I am and where I am today. And it's so important if you want to really, really maximize your outcomes and give the best uh, long-term aesthetic and functional outcome for your patients. And uh, thank you for your attention.
1: Prof, well, on behalf of people from all over the world, I mean, there are more than 60 countries uh, who have listened on the podcast. We've had more than 11,000 downloads. Um, You are a true gentleman. Prof, thank you for how you teach. Thank you for your passion for rhinoplasty. And thank you for how you have not only under your scalpel helped people, but how you've helped surgeons from all over the world. So yeah, thank you very, very much for your time this afternoon.
0: Cameron, thanks a lot for putting the series together. It's a testament to your commitment to education, and it's benefited a lot of people, including me, going through that period of time learning dorsal preservation. So Thanks to you as well. Uh, I applaud your efforts.